No, just down a bit would be good. If I'd known it was that bright, I'd have bought my sunglasses. For those of you who were expecting Phil tonight, uh, my apologies. I know I don't look much like him. I'm not as tall as him and I'm a couple of days older. But uh, I enjoy being thrown in at the deep end. Phil rang me, I think it was on Thursday, to say that he and Michelle uh, needed to be together tonight because uh, they're preparing for the arrival of another baby tomorrow. So please pray for Phil and Michelle. I want to begin by asking a question. What would the perfect church look like? Probably another way of asking that question is this. What is God's vision for his church? For we need to be sure that our vision is also the Lord's vision for his church. And assuredly, he has a vision for the perfect church. He's had that since the beginning of history and he's working in us to bring it into being. So if we're going to be wise master builders with him, we need to see his plans and not just follow our own idealistic notions. Understanding the power of seeds is foundational to understanding many things about the unfolding purposes of God. Now, where we live, there are some uh, quite ginormous eucalypt trees. Probably where some of you people live, there are some ginormous eucalypt trees. They all grew from a tiny eucalypt seed and that seed has the complete ginormous gum tree already stored in its genetic code. The seed of the church that contains the spiritual genetic code of the mature church, which will be the, the bride of Christ, is contained within that seed. The first century church was a seed and it contained within its spiritual genetic code all that the church will be in its maturity because we know that when the Lord builds something, he does it right and we can be sure that the foundation of the church was put in the right place. But let's remind ourselves that just as a eucalypt seed doesn't look much like a mature gum tree, the mature church at the end of this age won't look much like that seed that was planted in the first century. The Lord is not going to rebuild the first century church, but he's going to build a 21st century church. The two will be as alike and as different as the eucalypt seed is from the giant gum tree that it becomes. Even so, the spiritual pattern of the 21st century church is found in the book of Acts, which is the story of the first century church. And so I challenge you to, to read the book of Acts 
just to get a picture and an understanding of what that first century church was like. While you read the book of Acts, you need to remember that the first century church was a cult. And I don't use that subtitle just for shock effect. It's true. The first use of the word cult in history was in reference to first century Christians. At the time, this was not intended to be derogatory, but they were called this because the word cult was derived from the word culture. Christians were so different from any other group of people that they were perceived to be an entirely different culture that existed within the nations. They were that different. And I guess another question is, are we? And of course the word cult today has a different meaning and I don't think any of us would want it to be applied to us. But even so, Christians should be strikingly different from all other people. We should be a more distinct community than any other group. As we are told in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in that passage, Christians are declared to be a chosen race. Have you ever thought of yourself as a member of a new race since your conversion? If we still think of ourselves first as uh, white Australians, Aboriginal, uh, Sri Lankan is probably fairly topical at the moment if you're interested in cricket, uh, Chinese, whatever, whoever. If we think of ourselves that way rather than first as Christians, it only reveals the degree to which our identity is still in our humanity rather than in the reality of who we were born again to be. But it's not wrong to also identify with our racial background, but we should have more in common with Christians of other races than we do with someone who is just a member of our natural race. When we were born again, we literally became eternal fellow members of a new and unique race on the earth. As Christians, we are called to be different, as different or distinguishable as a race is. But we shouldn't be distinguishable by any physical features, the power of our, but by the power of our character and the life of God that flows through us. The content of our character should be so different and so Christ-like that we stand out conspicuously as Christians. As we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, so from now we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we have regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. When we are born again, everything is open to change. And that's especially true the way we view others and ourselves. If our identity is going to continue to be found in the old person that we were, sorry, is our identity going to continue to be found in the old person that we were or in the new creation that we now are? And this one key point can determine the degree on which we go on to fulfil our purposes in Christ because it fundamentally affects the way we relate to this world and our purpose in it. And one basic characteristic I see of the perfect church is that it is composed of people who will stand out in any group because they exhibit the character of Christ. And possibly the greatest thing that could ever be said about us is what was said about Peter and John in Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that these were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When people begin to recognise us as having been with Jesus, we're on the path to becoming a perfect church. The Lord doesn't judge the quality of a church by how good the uh, meetings are on Sunday morning or Sunday night, but how the people behave on Monday morning. The second identity that we're given in 1 Peter uh, 2 is that we are a royal priesthood. And one of the great truths that was highlighted by the Reformation was that the New Covenant makes it clear that the priesthood is for all believers. Even so, how many Christians even think in terms of their priestly calling and duties on a daily basis or at all? Of those who know this truth concerning their priesthood doctrinally, how many are actually functioning in this commission. For not only are we a priesthood, but we are a royal priesthood. Christians are the true royalty in the earth, sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And so we should conduct our lives with the dignity, the grace and the integrity of such royalty. If you've ever been in the presence of royalty, and I can't lay claim to having done that. But I believe that there is no question that grace, dignity and their general demeanour make them stand out. That is the result of their upbringing and their training from childhood. But isn't this something that all Christians should also be trained in? This kind of dignity and nobility is not arrogance or aloofness, but rather what I want to call the grace of simple good manners. Good manners are based on thoughtfulness, 
and being considerate of others. And Christians should be the best at this. They should always conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of their calling. We should also understand that a priesthood is for the purpose of first serving the Lord but also serving all nations, races and cultures with intercession and ministry. If our identity is truly with the Lord first, this duty as priests should be foremost in our minds. It should be above all earthly duties, professions or vocations. We should be priests in our workplaces, in our universities, in our TAFEs, We should carry out our priestly duties with even more diligence than we do our physical job, which, by the way, should also be done with the highest standards, as is only befitting royalty. So I think that the perfect church should stand out in all of these things. But all of this is still preliminary to the really important matters. The final description in 1 Peter 2 for believers is that we are a holy nation. And when we look at all the diverse diverse nations of the world, there are almost as many different ways that they are formed as there are nations. Some are based on race, others religion, some on geography, others base their nationhood on standing up against a common enemy. And this difference is also reflected in how nations recognise one another. When there is a change of government in a nation, all of the other nations must determine if they're going to accept the change by recognising that government. So do the nations of the world recognise the holy nation that we are called to be? I think it would be fairly safe to say that at present they probably don't because there is nothing distinct enough about us to require them to recognise us in that way. When one nation recognises another nation, they exchange ambassadors, which basically means that they communicate and seek ways to be mutually beneficial whether through trade or defence packs or uh, exchange of ideas, whatever. But I believe that when we become the church that we are called to be, the nations of the world will start to recognise the body of Christ in a similar way. And if that's to be so, how? The Greek word translated holy is uh, hegios, which is defined as sacred, pure, morally blameless, as well as things like religious and ceremonially consecrated. But this indicates the primary way and reason that we should be recognised as a nation. And that is by our moral purity and consecration to our national purpose and identity which is our devotion to the Lord's commission. Now, recent studies of the church indicate that there is no longer 
a moral difference between those that consider themselves born-again Christians and non-Christians. And that's a fairly frightening thought. Just 50 years ago, the difference was striking and profound. And this was reflected by the way that Christian leaders were looked to for guidance, even from governments. So what has happened? I believe that the words of the Lord's own prophecy in Matthew 24, 12 have been fulfilled when he said, because of the increase in wickedness, most people's love will grow cold. Notice that he didn't say many, but most would grow cold. And I think there's fairly clear evidence, especially in the Western church, that in fact most Christians' love is growing cold. Few Christians can be distinguished by their character, their love for one another or their devotion to obeying the Lord's commission. But I also believe that this is changing, is about to change. And even though the love of most may grow cold, there will be a church raised up that loves the Lord so much that she makes herself ready for him and the whole world will witness her beauty and glory before the end of this age. Remember that the Lord warned the church of Ephesus that if she didn't repent for leaving her first love, her lampstand would be removed from its place. And those lampstands represented the church's standing before the Lord. So to lose the lampstand meant that the Lord no longer considered that church to be part of his church. So it follows that to be a church means that we'll have to maintain our first love for the Lord. And the perfect church will obviously be perfect in this most important devotion. Also, it doesn't say anywhere in the scripture that those whose love has grown cold can't be reignited. And this is happening for many in these times. One of the great revivals that is now taking place is a recovery of people who have left the church and the turning again to Christ of lukewarm Christians. And that, to me, is encouraging because there's no greater evangelistic force on this earth than an encouraged church. So the church is called to be a separate holy nation within the nations. And we're about to experience some very serious nation building in the church. And one of the foundations of that church will be true holiness, the result of the bride of Christ becoming so passionately in love with him. To be holy is basically to be giving everything to the Lord. True holiness is not a form of legalism, can't be legislated for. It's the result of love for the Lord. 
And this bride of Christ, his church, will be without spot or wrinkle, as the scriptures say, not because she is afraid that the bridegroom will strike her down if she's not perfect, but because she's so in love with him that she wants to be perfect when he comes for her. In gathering of new believers into the church worldwide in the last, what, 20 years, has been estimated by some to exceed the ingathering into the church for the entire past 1,900 years, ever since the day of Pentecost. Now, one reason we could give for that is that there are currently as many people living alive on the earth today as have lived on earth during all the previous generations combined. But I believe it's more than that. Christianity today is experiencing its most dramatic growth in history. But sadly, that's in other places than the Western world where most churches have experienced significant decline. But I believe also that Western countries are poised for another great awakening. So where is this leading? Great movements within Christianity to date have resulted in denomination building rather than nation building. And a denomination is basically a division. This hasn't all been negative. As many of the Denominations produce, have produced significant advancements for Christianity as a whole. But there is a movement taking place that is very different from previous ones and it is about unifying of the different spiritual tribes into a single holy nation. And I believe that this is a characteristic of the church that we should be seeking to build. While every movement and congregation should have have its own vision and purpose, its own uniqueness, it should also fit together with the rest of the body of Christ as a member of the whole. Remember that the Lord said that the harvest will come at the end of the age. The harvest comes when a crop is mature. And even with all the troubles, divisions and shameful mistakes that the Lord, that the church has made over the years, there has actually been a notable maturing of Christianity as a whole in recent times. And that's very dramatically accelerated probably in the last 20 years. Some of this maturing has actually come out of previous problems. And while in some ways large parts of the church have had a meltdown in moral standards, in other ways the church is maturing in a remarkable way. One example I can give for that is that there's never before been such a time when Christian leaders are reaching across traditional walls and barriers to work together. 
seldom these days is that sort of thing done out of mere obligation as part of the ecumenical movement, you know, where churches got together to try and sort out their differences. Today, churches get together and forget about their differences and have a deep desire for interchange and fellowship and unity. When repentance restores the church's moral fabric, there is potential for a greater spiritual advance in true church life than there has been since the first century. I must confess to be to being wary of what I might call premature unity, especially unity that has so obviously been based on political or economic considerations. And I probably better not get started on that, coming, as many of you know, from uh, previous background in the Uniting Church. I'm pre increasingly encouraged that the interchange and unity which is now beginning to evolve is much more substantial than that. And I now have a sincere hope of seeing Christianity emerge into a true and clearly distinguishable holy nation in our lifetimes, especially of those of you who are just a couple of days younger than I am. And when this happens, Christians will stand out like the stars at night in whatever setting they are in. Then, and only then, will we be getting close to being the church that Christ wants us to be. And I now want to share some specifics about what my vision of a mature local church would look like. First of all, its leadership would be a team, a team composed of prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, people that measure up to the biblical statures of those ministries. It would also have the input and oversight of an authentic apostolic ministry. These teams would not only be of the biblical stature of each of these ministries, but they would also be devoted to equipping all of the members of the congregations in their gifts and ministries, just as we are told that this is the purpose of those ministries. So we're looking at a form of uh, plurality of leaders. And if you read in the book of Acts, you'll see there that the leadership of the church in Jerusalem moved from Peter to James, the leadership of the whole church seemed to move from Peter to Paul and later to John. And the individual with the anointing would lead at any given particular time. Let's look at some examples. For a time, the main leader of a local church may need to be an evangelist somebody to impart a love for the lost to all of the believers. Then it may need to be led by a prophet to impart vision 
and sensitivity to knowing the Lord's voice. Next, a teacher may need to lead to emphasise practical teaching and going deeper into uh, sound doctrine, if we want to call it that. Church may then need to be led by a pastor to impart a vision for healing and strengthening families and supporting the poor and all of those things that we do out in the community. With the leadership being rotated this way, there would be an overall balance and equipping that would help build a strong, comprehensive ministry of Christ in his church. Part of my vision for a perfect church would be that, would be that there would be many home groups, home groups that were multiplying continually because of the influx of new believers. And every home group would be led by those who are equipped to lead people to the Lord, cast out demons, pray for the sick, disciple new believers and establishing them all in sound biblical teaching. There would also be equipping ministries functioning in those home groups that would raise up every member to disciple others. And in this way, the leadership of the church would be continually growing and being renewed. The home groups would be a place where the gifts of the spirit function as well as where worship, prayer and most of the personal ministry and counselling would be performed. Relationships would be built here so that each home group would be like an extended family. In this way, the primary pastoral ministry of the church would be carried out through home groups, groups that are small enough for true relationships to develop and to effectively watch over and cover each other in the Lord. Our corporate gatherings would be for worship, the highest level of apostolic teaching and prophetic revelation. Our corporate gatherings would also be for receiving visiting teachers and prophets, ministries of uh, stature that would have a message for the whole church as well as for hearing from the home groups what is happening in their midst. So the real identity of the church would come from home groups, small groups, and not from the corporate gatherings. Believers would be free to minister and expect the Lord to move in any place and at any time. Corporate gatherings would also be where tithes and offerings were taken, goods collected to provide for the the needy outside the church. In the book of Acts, we are told that the offerings were laid at the apostles' feet. They needed to be responsible for the distribution of those offerings and the financial health of the church. Every local church would also be part of a fellowship made up of all the local churches within a city or region. And they would meet regularly for, fe with, for fellowship with each other and to host special visiting ministries who would come to, vi to minister to the city. And it would be through this city-wide church that the congregations would oversee and support ministries to schools uh, for city-wide worship and prayer that where the leadership would come uh, 
to go out to uh, poorer countries, to conduct things like youth camp, as well as to become involved in citywide evangelism. In other words, the citywide church would be the storehouse ministry of all the churches within that city. The leaders of the local congregations would get together to add substantially to the life of the church in the city. So my concept of the perfect or mature church is a subject that requires a lot of uh, thought and attention. The roles of deacons and leaders would be very important issues to be addressed in order for there to be true church life as it was intended. Now, I realise that a lot of what I'm sharing may seem idealistic and some of it may be because, let's face it, folks, until Christ comes again, there really will never be a perfect church. But I do believe that the Lord's vision for his church is something like what I've outlined and that we will see it happen. My experience has shown me that it can take many years to change actual behaviour, even when we are given a clear vision for something. But our main purpose is to keep a higher vision than just how we meet and function in the body of Christ. The highest vision must always be the forming of Christ within his people, not just getting them to comply with certain forms of meeting. And if we are growing up in him, our lives and our relationships will soon reveal him to the world. But if we're just trying to get people to do things in a certain way, sing songs in a certain way or go back to singing hymns or whatever, if we're just trying to do that sort of stuff, we're only becoming parrots that say and do the right thing, stuff that's not really in our hearts. True church life is the result of nothing less than the Lord manifesting himself in our midst and changing us by revealing his glory. We need to take a step-by-step -step approach to establishing a vision of what we are to grow up into as Christians. Because remember, we are called to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are called to be a separate nation within the nations whose very existence testifies to the excellencies of the king who rules over us. So as Christians, we should be strikingly distinguishable from all other people. We are in fact an alien nation within the nation as we are a new creation that is vastly different from our former fallen, fallen nature. This holy nation also has a different government 
Of course, we honour the governments of the nations that we live in because they too have received their authority from God and they are our host. But even so, our main purpose on this earth is to prepare the way for the kingdom that is to come to serve its interests and not the interests of the nations of this world. We must seek to be a blessing to the nations which now host us to the degree that we can, but basically, folks, we serve another king, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And in all things, we've got to place the interests of his kingdom first. As we proceed towards the end of this age, the holy nation will become more distinguishable. It will become an increasingly bright light set on a hill in the midst of the darkness. The Christian community will become a community with a powerful and a distinct identity. And that doesn't mean that we've got to live in separate neighbourhoods, but it means that the bond between Christians will grow so strong that they will be increasingly distinguishable as a community of people within the wider community. We will live by other principles and laws than those that the world lives by. We live by the laws of grace, which is freedom. We live under the leading, the enabling, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We live under the rule of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only head of the church, and that should make a difference and make us different. So church, how do you reckon we're doing here at Wodonga Baptist? I think if you really think about it, many of the things that, I'm, that I've talked about are happening, beginning to happen in this church. And we should be very thankful for the way in which our leaders are allowing the Holy Spirit to form the vision of Christ's church in this church. Sure, we'd be less than honest if we said we'd arrived and we didn't have a long way to go. But I believe that the uh, foundations are there and that we're moving in the right direction. Let's pray and ask God to keep us moving along that path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son to form his church on this earth. By his death and resurrection and his, his sending the Holy Spirit into our midst, he ordained his church to be his holy nation on this earth. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for the ways in which 
we've torn that vision apart over the centuries. But we thank you also that your spirit is leading his church out of the darkness into the light and that increasingly your church will stand out from the community around it. Lord, we're also reminded that you commissioned us to be in the world but not a part of it. You commissioned us to save souls or to be the instruments of saving souls. So, Lord, empower us to carry out that great commission in the community around us. Lord, help us to become part of the vision for a citywide church that will have influence in all the areas of this community. Lord, that won't be seen as a community standing apart, but as a true example of what your community would be like. Lord, strengthen us, give us the courage, anoint us by your spirit to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.